Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is Lance Bennett. And it could not be a more propitious day, because guess what, Prof. Bennett? Today, for the first time in my life, I taught a class called Political Communication. How about that? Very (laughs) exciting. Well, a subject in which I'm spectacularly underqualified. But it turns out that at least in Spain, if you can make what appears to be some sense of the United States historically over the last 20 years, and you can say Bernays quickly and often, they give you a gig. Well, indeed, uh, I I think anybody who can make sense out of the United States should get a gig. (laughs) They don't realize that I'm faking it. They don't know my accent is all from something else. Anyway, Lance, um, my incredibly exciting biography aside, tell us what you're thinking about today, what's dynamizing you or troubling you, preoccupying you, what's happening for you, sitting there in what looks like a, a sunny Berlin. Well, um, lots of things are preoccupying me um, on a personal level, which crosses over pretty quickly to my academic concerns. um, I'm preoccupied with the collapse of world systems uh, from the geopolitical systems to economic systems to climate systems, all of which seem to be meshing rather dysfunctionally. And uh, many days I... uh, take a a break from the news, I find, even though I was a student of news as an academic for many years, still am to some degree. Um, But uh, along with most of the people I know, the world is just uh, crushingly sad. And um, it doesn't look to be uh, too many people in control anymore. So my my worst fear is that uh, these systems are uh not under uh, much political control other than destructive forms of control turf wars and uh things like that so so that's the the personal level but the the, the academic spin-off from from all of that is uh the erosion of democracy so i've been which is another not very cheery topic uh so i've been spending a lot of time thinking about what what are the conditions of democratic erosion and what might be some uh, uh, solutions, what systems seem to be more resilient and what kinds of communication processes seem to be more healthy. Uh, so, so that's my uh, current set of issues. That raises quite a lot of questions. And since the podcast restarted, Lance, which was late November, early December, after a hiatus of some years, One of the themes that's come through is particularly people, let's say, of our generation, talking about a sense of despair and looking for resources of hope. And I think that's what you've outlined uh, quite brilliantly in those few words. Now, going to the issue of the collapse of world systems, to my way of thinking, that goes back to Nixon, to 71, and in a sense, the breakup of Bretton Woods and the gold standard and so on. That's when you can see the Pax Economica, as it were, post-war fishery. Yeah. Uh-huh. But you're suggesting a lot more than that is falling apart in the very recent past. Could you outline that a bit more for us? 
Yeah, but I, I think you've, you've uh, put down a pretty good marker historically, because as, as you look at the uh, happy years of modern democracies post-World War II, um, the happiness did end in the early 70s when, when you had a convergence of, of balance of payments crises. The gold standard could no, no longer support the international monetary system. And then just to spice it up a bit, OPEC was formed and there was an oil cartel that began to uh, further grind the, the global economy through managing uh, oil prices. So all of that happened. And then uh, not that there was a lack of alternative economic systems to be brought in to replace Keynesianism at that point. There were many much more attractive systems out there. But the one that had positioned itself for uptake in such a moment was neoliberalism. And, and so by the time that, that the Keynesian system fell apart, you, you ended up getting uh, sort of a, a, an elite social movement, if there are many such things, that had been you know, kind of working its way toward the center um, through political power, through think tanks, through large capitalist donors and financiers uh, to, to be positioned for uptake along with uh, a lot of very effective salespeople like Milton Friedman and, and counterparts in other countries uh, that ended up being branded around winning Nobel Prizes very quickly in the 70s and 80s. And so neoliberalism took over and then unleashed the world system dysfunction based on so-called free markets and lack of regulation and um, and then, of course, the, the incredible shifting around the same time from a what had been more state-driven economic growth, infrastructure, and so on, to uh, consumer economies, which rapidly depleted the resources on the planet, uh, adding to pollution and speeding the growth of climate change, which is, the I think, the command system that's, that's kind of grinding uh, the world down these days forcing migration patterns and so on. So anyway, it's uh, the, 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 I, I can't blame the entire calamity on neoliberalism, although on a weak moment I might try. Uh, but it certainly didn't help, let's put it that way. Well, one of the things that happens in the early 70s, as you say, is that in think tanks in Britain, it was the Institute for Economic Affairs, exactly. which had direct routing to what became Margaret Thatcher's cabinet. But in the US, it was... Everything from, you know, the American Enterprise Institute on to much more problematic think tanks. Well, you had the, you know, the Manhattan Institute. So there were some very early extreme uh, right wing think tanks that, that were not just uh, developing economic uh, propaganda, but but social, you know, social engineering as well. And, and and early sources of disinformation. I mean, now we have a kind of a systemic disinformation, but but the, the right-wing think tanks were really pioneers in, in promoting disinformation through politics and, and newspapers and, and, and other outlets. So, so I, I think that that's really, uh, really true. And, and the AEI, you know, began to reposition itself as a neoliberal think tank in the 50s with Milton Friedman on the board. And, and so a, a lot of these, um, the Atlas network of neoliberal think tanks, which is now some 500 or more, uh, you know, 180 or so in the, the U.S. of various sizes and shapes for North America and uh, 140 or so in Europe, 
really began to develop a, a sort of propaganda system that that echoed the same messages tailored to different cultures and conditions in different countries. Um, so, so that is a, a sort of an, and it's an ongoing source of disruptive communication. And the other thing is, Lance, as I see it, and I'm not the expert here at all, is that these people pose as scholars. So frequently they produce reports or studies, very rarely published in referee journals, very rarely published by distinguished presses, that get huge amounts of media attention and have done for decades, as if they were wholly academic writ. So. Right. There is, there was certainly a conversion within bourgeois economics towards monetarism in the period we're describing, but that's collapsed now. They don't believe that anymore. They're coming to believe the things that we always believed, but nevertheless, that message that maybe is getting changed a bit as neoclassical economics failed in almost everything other than mm-hmm. as a proposive actor, it succeeded as an actor. It failed as an analytic framework. Yeah, it was a bogus analytic framework from the start. Yeah, it was, it, the, the main uh, success it had was when when Friedrich Hayek realized that he was marginal figure in his own field, and and understood that the way to overcome that was to market the ideas and develop these think tanks. I mean, that was his genius, not not his ideas, but the marketing of those ideas through this network of think tanks, uh, which turned out to be quite brilliant. Yeah. And, of course, this, this transformation in economics departments. I mean, I studied economics a couple of times with neoclassical professors, and I would say, where did, where did this ever happen? Right. You can't. You can't. I mean, I think that the the crowning condemnation is that a consensus emerged uh, that early on in the seventies that Chile was the model society for neoliberalism after the coup. Yeah, and when people are being murdered and right. tortured, and Friedman and the Chicago boys right. saying we're liberal when it comes to social and cultural issues. We've got no part to play in the dictatorship, even as they were taking the money from these. Exactly. Bastards. Oh, yeah, they were all consultants. I mean, it was the the great laboratory of neoliberalism. So, yeah, and neoliberalism also sold itself, you know, as as a, a, a social benefit promoting individual freedom. I mean, that, that was Margaret Thatcher's great one-liner. There is no such thing as society. We're all individuals, and we compete in order to be free. And, and of course, that ran aground on the rocks of austerity uh, because the, 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 the dirty secret of neoliberalism, which didn't stay secret so long, was, was that uh, that individual competition was made even more extremely difficult by the withdrawal of social benefits, public spaces, uh, support for education. I mean, the the price of of education in Britain or the United States today is reflective of of the whole program of neoliberalism, which quickly produced a backlash, first on the left, in in sort of the World Social Forum movements of the 90s and so on and so forth, 
Uh, but then on the right, I mean, so, so there have been sort of two waves of backlash against neoliberalism. And, and the right wing turns out to be the much more dangerous one because that is cutting into um, democracy itself. Now, warming up to that other theme before we both start crying in our, in your case, water, in my case, tea. If we go back to the 90s and the backlash against globalization of the economy that the left heralded or headed, but now is headed more effectively by the right in certain ways. The 90s was also a time when many people saw terrific democratic potential thanks to the internet, be it simply simply email exchange, recreating an epistolary culture per the early years of the Republic in the United States, for example, among certain groups, or be it the idea that you could adopt a new persona and be different from what you were born as or stereotyped as, uh, through to the idea that hmm. then the web became a, a place for social movements to organize and express themselves. This was seen in the United States as a clue to the success of the Obama campaign in 2008, for example. Hmm. Now, not so much. And again and again, we're seeing centrists, the Biden people, terrified about new communications technologies, including artificial intelligence and their impact on democracy. That's my capsule history in a minute. Tell me where I got it wrong and tell me if I got any of it right. Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and indeed, the the academic fields that study the internet and, and the nature of communication and uh, sort of individual and collective experiences online um, were far too optimistic. I mean, the, you know, the, that in the early days, it did seem, you know, with John Perry Barlow and the declaration of the independence of the collective mind online, all of that stuff um created sort of a, a wave of optimism that quickly crashed uh, against the thorough commercialization of, of life online. But, but more importantly, the colonization, I think political colonization, so that what might have remained otherwise sort of independent, uh, extreme fringe clusters of thought about whether it's neo-Nazism, racism, xenophobic nationalism, uh, fundamentalist Christianity, uh, freaky health perspectives, uh, anti-vaxxers, you know, on a QAnon, on and on and on, that, that those things might have been little floating networks separated from each other. But what connected them was sort of strategic um media platforms and political organizations that began finding common threads that could tie those fringe networks together into things like the MAGA movement in the U.S. or the Pegida movement, which has now uh, sort of morphed into uh, the anti-immigration party, the alternative for Deutschland here in Germany. Um, so so, so the, that there is a kind of a, a not very often talked about organizational infrastructure that has turned the otherwise sort of wild west chaos of, of the early internet into um, highly organized 
movements that support parties that are gaining strength in 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 parliaments. Um, and the left, meanwhile, lost that opportunity, never really developed it. So, so that the the sort of early optimism, I think, was uh, kind of founded in the the joy of anarchic uh, leftism, you know, uh, which never goes well. But uh, <laughs> who's going to take the garbage out, and who's going to collect it? This is what my father exactly. would say. Exactly. So the, the you know the, the the freedom that the internet promised to to I think left leaning academics and and uh, you know the user communities never ended up organizing itself in any collective way. I mean there there have been the largest human online networked protests in history that that. Uh, the, the, that that infrastructure created Occupy Wall Street, the um, the Indignados in Spain, the the years of of rebellion in in the you know Afri North Africa and, and the Middle East, um, but none of that was stable enough to have a a next act. So so these things come and they're impressive indeed, but then they they disappear. They evaporate, uh, whereas the right has figured out, you know, a, a different model for 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 maintaining stability and really high levels of, of organization and, and mobilization. So so I think that, yeah, what's happened is 20 years later, uh, the Internet is is now viewed as a kind of a mixed bag at best and maybe a scary place uh, much of the time. Both for politics, but but also for young people online, for you know, you you name it. And most of the ills of human society have been coded into the internet today. One of the key theoretical and analytic contributions that uh, you've made, Lance, is uh, along with collaborators, the notion of connective action, not collective action, but mm -hmm. connective action. I'm saying that as clearly as I can. Could you outline for us what that means and how it relates to the story you've just told us? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Um, I think we see connective action in lots of different forms. The the grand protests of Occupy Wall Street or the Indignados in Spain, um, you know, could not have happened without online connectivity across millions of individuals right i mean so so it was like an individualized collectivity and whereas collective action from the old social movements civil rights name your social movement uh was um much differently organized i mean there were there were often ideological frames that were shared by people that provided shared identities for individuals participating in these movements, um, powerful shared identities that were expressive uh, and transformative for, for many people who were in those movements and who benefited later from them. Uh, whereas connective action is uh, much more grounded in individual stories, you know, my life experience. If, if you look at um, Occupy Wall Street, I mean, what, what do we want? We are the 99%. Many people misinterpreted what that meant as saying that we all share the same problems and concerns, 
But if you actually look at all of the platforms where the 99% participated by sharing their stories, they're highly personalized stories. And those personalized stories are of interest to others, of course. And so it's nice to hear hundreds and thousands of personal stories that are different than ours, but are all, you know, motivating us to protest our life experience. But it's not the same life experience that's being protested. I tried to, to count. I had a research team around the time of Occupy protests in the U.S., and, and we tried to catalog the demands and, and we, we got over uh, 300 uh, demand clusters that were fairly well populated. But it's very hard to express 300 different demands in any sort of effective way. Um, in Spain, where you are, uh, we looked at the Podemos party, which you could say was kind of a rough spinoff from, from the M19, uh, or was it M15 or... The, the indignados. And um, it turns out that they had an online platform for the party to receive inputs from all the circles around Spain that had participated in those massive protests. Uh, and the party platform in, in one of the early iterations had over 300 positions on it. You know, and, and it, it, it turns out that Pablo Iglesias wasn't very happy ever with that kind of an organizational process. And so he quickly uh, centralized the party um, and kind of killed it in, in a few years later. But um, but at the time, there was this party that actually did try and distill all these highly personalized clusters uh, of of issues and concerns and identity expressions. And of course, you, you can't run a political party around that, which is one of the reasons why all of the new parties on the left in most societies have failed. Um, and, you know, contrasting that with the much smaller set of identity issues with organizational uh, support and organizational management that seem to be going on on the radical right, so on the radical right, by contrast, you, you, you don't get sort of the crowd expressiveness of connective action. What you get is a different hybrid type of sort of organizationally enabled connective action where you take these fringe groups and then you find things that connect them so that you can actually uh, use racism, for example, to connect wellness communities with QAnon, with Christian fundamentalists and so on and so forth, and those common threads become identity, shared identity uh, principles. And of course, the other thing is that they can be well-established and often well-healed institutional backstops. I'm thinking of religion and the think tanks that you outlined before, and the right. left not really having those things. Um, exactly. So, so connective action tends to look different on the the left than than on the right, largely because of the amount of, of organization and money funding media platforms that that stabilize messages and and provide uh, platforms for individuals to share in and out of. Just a quick note on what you were saying. So it is M15 in Spain. M19 is a former guerrilla group in Colombia. Thank that you. Became democratic. <laughs> no, not Thank at all. You. It, you know. I, 
when you want to know about the big questions, who do you call, Lance? Who do you? It would be you, Toby. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> so uh, you mentioned earlier disinformation, and one of your major contributions is to write about that. And you co-edited a book three years ago that perhaps even coined the expression "the disinformation age." Yeah. Mm. I wonder if you could talk to us about this issue. Is this overplayed at the moment? Is it not such a big deal? Has it always been the case that there was propaganda? What about the decision to invade Iraq in 2003? Wasn't that the greatest campaign of disinformation of the post-war period? Are things truly different? And if so, why? Yeah, sure. I I mean, in many ways, you can look at uh, the sort of history of uh, 20th and and early 21st century uh, communication as a history of strategic disinformation, episodic disinformation, uh, which was originally called propaganda by Edward L. Bernays. And then uh, Bernays himself gave it a name change after Hitler had kind of abused the term a bit much. And so it was called public relations. Um, but but the, the premise of public relations as disinformation is it's it's episodic right you, you have a problem mm-hmm. you, you communicate in a way that makes the problem go away uh, and if if you're good at it or if people are receptive to what you're communicating but what i think now we are faced with is systemic disinformation it comes from all sides and it, it's 24 7 it, it doesn't let up um and and it, it kind of doesn't go away so you know the the fact that um, last poll I saw said that 34% of Republicans think the FBI was responsible for the January 6th insurrection in the United States. I mean, hello, you know, and, 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 and the FBI is now the enemy of the right, you know, and, uh, you know, COVID, COVID vaccines are planting microchips in us. I mean, this stuff just never goes away. Um, they need so, to watch more Ephraim Zimblis Jr. with in Quinn Martin's production that we grew up with, right? Yeah, yeah. Then they know the FBI's after those damn commies and those gangsters, those mobsters. <laughs> damn it! Exactly, exactly. Yeah, uh, that that image of the FBI is long gone. Uh, until uh, you know, we'll see if if Trump takes it over and uses it against his enemies. Uh, then then we'll have a, yet another incarnation of the FBI. So, so I think that what we're faced with today is systemic disinformation, which, of course, um, as Steve Bannon so famously put it in, in his phrase, floods the zone with shit. So, so some of that disinformation is, is useful for mobilizing people, but at the same time, it's also useful for really screwing up how we communicate and how you can have a coherent conversation in public. My older daughter's just become a mom. Lance, mm-hmm. and her baby's not yet old enough to have necessary vaccines. But that also means she can't see some of her friends who, along with their children, refuse vaccination because, you know, it's Bill Gates taking over your mind. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and one thing that's very odd to me is that as, as, as sort of the ideological coherence of the political spectrum dissolves around us, uh, what's the left? What's the right anymore? Um, what you end up seeing are some strange sort of closing of the circle between left and right. So in in 
Germany, there are querdenker, strange thinkers um, who are anti-vaxxers, among many other things, but but you find them both on the left and on the right. And so there have been protests that include, you know, leftists and righties all in the same protest about the same issue. The um, former post-communist party, the, the Die Linke in Germany, um, it, it was calcified. I mean, it was never a, a viable party, but it always maintained enough old line sort of far leftist ideological voters aging ideological voters um, to stay in parliament, but um, without a real direction or a real program. So one of the leaders of that party, Sarah Wagenknecht, has formed her own party, giving her own name to it, rather like Geert Wilders on the right in in the Netherlands has done. And um, her platform maps the top two or three issues of the right, the far right alternative for Deutschland party. And so we'll, we'll see how they compete for votes in areas where those issues, anti-immigration, pro-Russia, anti-war in Ukraine, uh, and to some extent the vaccination and the uh, sort of intrusion of the government in our private lives through things like public health, which used to be non-controversial now become interestingly, strangely mirrored on the far left and the far right. One of the things I guess that I'm noticing is that in the United States, the Republican Party, despite the fact that it continues to venerate the police and the military, can no longer be said to be the party of law and order, uh, nor could it be said to be the party of conservatism. It doesn't want to conserve things. It wants to destroy them at least in the Trump idiom. And one of the things that this makes me think about is another concept that you've written about very powerfully, which is civic life. And the idea that civic life, the old lowercase Republican virtues of US citizenship in its ideal, it means citizenship doesn't just mean you vote and democracy doesn't just mean the result of an election. Could you tell us a little bit about that notion of the Republican Party not being the party of law and order, but also something about what you think civic life should be. What might it resemble? Well, what it what it is and what might it resemble are somewhat different questions. But uh, I mean, I, I think it's interesting you're you're taking off point there that the Republicans are certainly disruptive and and indeed flooding public life with chaos of various sorts, from armed militias to lies uh, on a regular basis. Um, and, and yet they point the finger as at the left as having caused all of that. So, so they, 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 you know, they have a, an out uh, that, that seems to at least work for them. I mean, it may not work for you or for me, uh, but, but doing all this and then pointing at the left as the cause of it all uh, seems to be the immaculate solution uh, for, for them uh, in communication terms. But but what is citizenship today? You know, it's an interesting question because I've been, if my work on citizenship was you know, 15 years ago um, in a much different time. I mean, it's, it's sort of in a land far away from what we know now. And uh, I, I sort of gave it up. I thought I'd said, I mean, I, I caught the early 
edges of connective action and the individualization as a result of the sort of neoliberal transformations of societies. People, all people sort of have identity issues these days. Uh, the right, unfortunately, has managed to form uh, a, a core identity set, uh, whereas the left has not. Um, but that's a, that's a different problem. But but so, so you know, my, my sense was that, OK, there's sort of some new wrinkles in citizenship that involve um, identity expressive citizenship. Um, but but now what I'm beginning to, to see is that we live in democracies that have um, opposing communication systems in them. So you have sort of the old liberal democratic communication systems operating on principles of reason, the enlightenment, tolerance, inclusion, um, and the, the illiberal right communication system is, is, is anti-reason, intolerant, and exclusive, right? And citizenship, I think, and I haven't worked this out, so I'm just going to leave this with you as kind of an open question at this point. Uh, it, it seems to me that, that you know, you get different kinds of citizenship within those different uh, liberal or illiberal uh, culture uh, sets. And, and that, I think, we need to explore more of. So I guess I'm going to return your question and say this, to me, is the next big question about citizenship. Yes, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I think it, the notion of it has split into different fields over time for me. So there's political citizenship as conceived classically in ancient Greece and then in a modern idiom for white property-owning men in revolutionary France and the US, expanding and expanding and expanding, at least formally so, to the point where most countries now say they're democracies. But there's something else, which is economic citizenship that emerges, one could argue, in the, at the end of a civil war with the pension for the widows of Union soldiers, but really expands after the Great Depression when governments acknowledge, especially those that rely on young working class people who've never had a job dying in the Second World War, that they need to make guarantees that those people will have jobs if they come back or their children or parents, especially fathers, will have jobs, transforming into this more individualist notion with the rise of monetarism and neoliberalism. And then the emergence of a notion of cultural citizenship, which is about claims to communication and culture and identity. And there's some imbalance across those three forms, I think, right. that is part of this problem. Um, anyway. Yeah, and I, I think we are living in and, and witnessing uh, another period of of change in what citizenship means, um, and of course, you know, you could see this in in earlier historical eras, Weimar Germany, and the transition to National Socialist Germany uh, in the 30s. Is that that citizenship w was transformed uh, in those moments, and and in the in the transition period, the late 20s to the early 30s. Um, citizenship clashed in the streets, often violently. And uh, I, I think we could see a, another time such as that in the U.S. Uh, following a Trump victory and uh, the, the repressive politics that are likely to come with that. And, of course, we've seen some 
good signs. Countries that have had a, a blood-only notion of citizenship, expanding that to include the capacity to gain citizenship. But yes, that's at a formal level, and that's always under threat. But for sure, it's not hard to imagine those kinds of conflicts in which the left would ironically, in many cases, be aligned in the United States with the military and the cops. Not isn't, that, isn't that ironic? Yeah. It sure is. Brock That's Bennett, I've got just two more questions for you, and then I'd like to throw it to you to add to or subtract from anything we've said. Sound okay? Perfect. So my first question is, of the two remaining, how do you find shit out? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Um, uh, you know, I start by leaving a lot of questions open for a long time. Um, my in, in my wayward youth, I seized on easy answers far too often and uh, often found them lacking uh, over time. So I, I know less the more I ask questions. So, and, and I'm okay with that. It's, it's a different uh, epistemology. I mean, I, I, I've lived through periods where I was ideological and my friends were ideological and we knew everything and it was all simple and wonderful. Uh, but I, I find uh, ambiguity, uncertainty to be more in tune with our times um and 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 also what i have done and this is really not an academic pursuit so much as it is a personal one um i have tried to rely much more on my emotional side uh assuming that i have managed to clear it up a bit and work out the emotional kinks uh, of, of a life long lived. Um, and, and that if I can find a sort of emotional clarity, uh, to me, that's often much more satisfying than cognitive uh, clarities. So, so I've sort of changed my epistemology to, to work on uh, finding emotional truths that are not um, that that are more or less open to change. There are emotions that are, of course, closed off from change and that are inflicted on others because you need to oppress others to be emotionally correct yourself. But I, but there there are other ways to to manage one's emotions in a knowing kind of way. Well, that's a great answer. Thank you. Not one I'd be brave enough to come up with. And then my last question prior to handing it over to you, Prof B, is to tell us what you're working on now. You did mention when we had our, you know, male gossip locker room session for a quarter of an hour before we started recording, um, which was, you know, more the confessional for me, I think, than anything else. Yeah. Since moving part of the time from the Pacific Northwest to central northern Europe from Washington State to Germany, you've encountered a, perhaps a different kind of political science. Have I got that right? Or a different kind of research energy? Yeah, I, I think so. I, 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 first of all, 
Europe is is uh, a, a wonderful collection of of different countries that have somewhat different. I mean, the, you know, U.S. social science has kind of dominated the the Western world in some unfortunate ways. But I, but I find that that European social science, varying from country to country, of course, um, is open to more theoretical work, more philosophically informed ideas. And this is not true for all of them. I mean, so a lot of projects look just like you would find at Ohio State or or something like that. But um, but but I, I find that my European colleagues are um, interested in. Uh, exploring ideas, not necessarily at, at coming up with easy answers that get published. If that's a, I mean, if that's a stereotype, I'm, I'm apologizing for that. But, uh, but so I, I, I've had more fun in Europe than I, I remember having in the U.S. when I was doing most of my work there. Well, people who know your work through things like political communication, communication studies may not be aware of just what a dire monster political science is in that country. <laughs> Indeed, you know, I, I, I quickly felt that, I mean, even though I, I, I was on track to uh, be successful in political science, I was launched from a good program and I did all the right things, got grants, editorial boards of journals and all that. I wasn't happy. I was not intellectually happy. I found the field to be terribly confining. And then uh, since I was interested in communication, and it was a very diminished part of political science, and then there was this whole field of communication sitting right next door, um, that, that turned out to be a, a door I opened and found uh, a whole different world in. So so my communication colleagues were uh, both welcoming and and far more interesting in terms of broad interdisciplinary ideas. Um, I mean, communication is is a field that, that doesn't have a, an easy definition, therefore, but I don't think that easy definitions uh, make a field. So, One of the tragedies that you're alluding to is that in dominant U.S. philosophy, you don't get to discuss philosophy, or at least not political philosophy and political theory, and in dominant U.S. political science, you don't get to talk about politics. Really not. It's so bloodless, you know. It's just devoid of of real politics. I mean, it it, it has been coming back a little bit, you know. I mean, there there have been some good political economy studies. Uh, Larry Bartel's work on on the economics of representation begins to move political, and you know, it's 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 still mainstream work, but he's just asking questions that. Uh, political scientists avoided asking because they were kind of working out of the storybook uh, notions of democracy for too many years. Uh, it turns out that the fairy tale version of democracy was harder and harder to support empirically. <laughs> and Lance, to conclude, I wanted to ask whether there are things you'd like to add to what we've discussed as the sun goes right down in Berlin, but is still blasting away into my eyes in Madrid whether there are things you'd like to add to what we've discussed or even subtract therefrom. Oh, I think this has been a really fun conversation. I, I don't know that I would add very much. I think we've touched on a lot of things and uh, I hope that those listening to it will take away a few questions that uh, they can work on as well. So I appreciate your, your good questions, your, your congenial style and uh, look forward to our next discussion. Many thanks, Lance.
Bye now.